Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The Gist is sponsored by Friday Night Tykes. Gear up for a new season of the most controversial show on television. For these 10-year-old boys, playing a man's sport comes with a very high price. Friday Night Tykes. New season premieres January 20th at 9 on Esquire Network. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, January 16th, 2015 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So have we got an interview for you today. Well, first, we're going to lead with the business news. Big macro type news. We'll get into it. But right now, right here, Radio Shack entering bankruptcy. What's the problem? Well, it could be the radio, but might be the shack. They did update the store's name from Telegraph Wigwam, but still, not even Betamax booth. No, nothing. Also, Caesar's Palace entering bankruptcy, and Target is withdrawing from Canada, which is, of course, a replay of the skirmish of Frenchman's Creek, if you know your War of 1812 battles. So here is my suggestion. Combine all three of these floundering businesses into a super hybrid business that just can't lose. It could be a Roman Empire-themed electronics store that will sell you a flash drive and then steals your data. Remember? Target? Data leak? Yeah. A big box retailer where cocktail waitresses ply you with drinks in an attempt to get you to foolishly double down on your purchase of three-prong adapters. Or the place where Evil Knievel once jumped a fountain of knockoff designer furniture and AAA batteries. Tarshak Palace. It has a chance. So on the show today, like I don't want to boast or anything, but I'm about to bring you the most informative discussion you will ever hear about how bulls make love. Hint, there is no love. Further hint, there is an artificial cow part that is intimately involved. Also... You'll want to drink directly from the glass at a dairy farm and not use a straw after hearing this interview. You'll never drink milk again without thinking of bovine homoeroticism that is inherent in the process. Oh, I love this interview. And in the spiel, I honor the process. But first, when it comes to international monetary shockers, you'd be remiss to dismiss the Swiss. We're joined now by Felix Salmon, who is the host of a wonderful Slate podcast, or at least one of the panelists, but also the guy who sets It's definitely one of the top 20 <laughs> Slate podcasts. <laughs> yes. Which actually is, is a thing that uh, is not without meaning these days. But Felix, give your real title, Felix. I am a senior editor at Fusion. I know that you know that I have an MBA in advanced Swiss accounting. In fact, I like to study it in the original Swiss. But can you... (laughs) The That's right. Can you explain to me, and uh, let's pretend, because, you know, I'm doing this as a surrogate for the audience, that we're a little confused about this apparently major economic news with uh, the Swiss franc. Or franc, what's going on? The Swiss franc is now 20% more expensive or more valuable, depending on how you want to look at it, than it was, you know, 24 hours ago. Mm. The Swiss National Bank was printing Swiss francs. Anyone who wanted to come to the Swiss National Bank with a euro, it would pay them 1.2 Swiss francs and send them away and say, you 
we're going to pay you lots of Swiss francs, 1.2 Swiss francs for your euro. And it, because it's the Swiss, the Swiss central bank, it can just print those Swiss francs. It can do that forever and create billions and billions of Swiss francs. But it got worried about just how many billions of Swiss francs it was printing. It got worried that once the Europeans started doing weird monetary policy things of their own, it would need to do this much more. And so it woke up in the morning and said, we're not going to do this anymore. We're not going to pay you 1.2 Swiss francs for your euros anymore. We're just going to let the market decide what the value of the Swiss franc should be. And the market decided the Swiss franc should be much more valuable. So now... And the bankers knew this would happen. Well, they knew that if the Swiss National Bank got out of the market, then yeah. the Swiss franc would would appreciate massively, which it did. Yeah. But no one believed or expected that the Swiss National Bank would do this because the Swiss National Bank is trying to keep the Swiss economy healthy. The Swiss economy is based on exports, and now the Swiss export is a screaming in pain because everything which they're trying to sell is 20% more expensive. Right. I'm understanding more. Do you think that the Swiss now, given the reaction of the markets, which was surprise and sell-offs and so forth, do you think the Swiss bank now thinks it made a mistake? No. And let's put this into context. The market was certainly surprised. The Swiss stock market went down, but it went down in Swiss franc terms. In any other terms, in euro terms or dollar terms, it went up. And (laughs) Switzerland is a very small country. Everyone in Switzerland lives very nearby to Germany or Italy or France or basically a country where they can buy whatever they like with euros. Everyone in Switzerland just got a 20% pay rise. It's not like they're that upset. Why should this matter to an average American, not a guy who works on Wall Street, but an average American, or should it? There's zero relevance to the (laughs) average American. It really, like, Switzerland is a small economy in the middle of Europe, and unless you're going to Switzerland on holiday or going to a conference there next week, it really doesn't matter. So let's talk about something that does matter to Americans, or maybe matters a little more. American banks have been doing rather poorly judged against how well American banks have been doing. Let me editorialize by saying, wah. But is there anything other than schadenfreude I should be taking from this? This rather poorly thing, as you say, it's if you look at the billions of dollars they're making in profit, it's really hard to look at that on an absolute level and say, ooh, that's not very good. They're making loads of money. The only thing is they're not making maybe quite as much money as they were, but they're still making loads of money. They're still, frankly, making too much money. Banks shouldn't be hugely profitable. They're meant to be intermediaries. There's meant to be lots of competition between them to drive prices down. And it doesn't make sense to me why banks should be this profitable. And I don't think it's healthy for the economy when banks are this profitable. So I'm very happy about anything which brings bank profits down. And I never like to give advice investment advice on my show. But my God, the history has shown us that banks rebound and do well. There's a Republican Congress. This might just be a buying opportunity if you have some money lying around and can invest in anything. Maybe I'd invest in a bank on the cheap. What do you think? I think that's an incredibly bad idea. Banks are the most opaque and risky stocks you can possibly buy because no one knows what's going on inside them. And they have these enormous balance sheets. The value of a bank is the difference between two mind-bogglingly enormous numbers. It's assets and it's liabilities. So you take a bank like J.P. Morgan. It has $2 trillion of assets and $2 trillion of liabilities. And 
the margin there, the difference between them is, is you know, a couple of hundred billion dollars, and that's the value of the bank. But either of those numbers moves unexpectedly in one direction or the other, and the value of the bank can be wiped out. Now, here's what I want to do. You know, we're talking about banks not doing well, the Swiss franc thing. The other day, this was Thursday, this was the money and investing section of the Wall Street Journal. And now we're living in America at a time when jobs are going well. Maybe the retail numbers weren't great, but the deficit is at the the, uh, smallest as a percentage of spending that it's been since uh, 2007. There's a lot of good macroeconomic news. Yet, look at these headlines. These are all the headlines. Chill wind hits global stocks. Copper sinks on sell-off in Asia. This article about J.P. Morgan's Jamie Dimon reporting the bank's 6.6 decline in profit. This article about an oil company, Schlumberger slumps on oil, Bitcoin's plunge bites miners, everything bad, everything bad. I mean, normally we're told that there is some sort of relationship between Wall Street and Main Street or Wall Street and the rest of us. But just seems now that relationship seems more inverse than it's ever been before. It's completely inverse. Mm -hmm. What we've seen over the past five years of the recovery is that the recovery has benefited capital rather than labor. It's benefited the plutocrats who own the economy rather than the you and I who actually work in the economy. So long as the people who own the economy can pay their workers almost nothing and keep all of the profits for themselves, stock goes up. And what the stock market is, it's an index of how rich rich people are. It's not an index of how well the normal people are doing. So what's happening now is that normal people are actually starting to get wages. The amount that people are getting paid is going up. And that's good for them. It's good for us. It's good for the economy as a whole. But it might not be good for stocks. So let's stop looking at the stock market as a barometer of how the economy is doing, because really, it's just a barometer of how rich people are doing. Okay. And the argument they would say is, yes, but so many regular people have an investment in a 401k. If that goes up, uh, I have an investment in a 529. I just checked it. My kids are maybe now paid for their sophomore first semester in college (laughs) instead of their freshman second semester. So is the way to look at that that that's incredibly misleading or a very small thing when compared to everything else you've just been laying out, that the stock market is really just mostly for rich people? It's both of the above. The amount of money you have in wealth is absolutely tiny compared to the value of your labor. Most of your net worth, if you think about it in the grand scheme of things, is made up of the present value of your future earnings, that how much you can convert your labor into money is worth millions of dollars compared to like, you know, however few thousand, tens of thousands of dollars you might have in savings. Whereas the rich who own stocks, who own the world, basically, you know, the top 1% probably own 80% of the value of the stock market. They really make their money off capital rather than labor. If you have to work for a living, if you're making your money by working for a living, then you're labor, you're not capital. And if you have a little bit of savings in a 401k plan or a 529 plan or something like that, that's marginal. Felix Salmon, senior editor of Fusion, host and panelist of the Slate Money podcast, which posts Saturdays? Saturday mornings. There you go. Get it tomorrow. Thanks, Felix. Thank you. And now a word from our sponsor. We're gearing up for the new season of what's been called the most controversial show on TV. It's Friday Night Tykes. It looks at 10-year-old boys who are playing a man's sport, the sport of football, and the high price they pay. 
Sometimes the coaches are blind. Sometimes the coaches have the boys' best interest at heart. But it is an unflinching look at a subculture. You often find the most interesting documentaries described by that phrase. Friday Night Tykes is the series, and the new season premieres January 20th at 9 on the Esquire Network. He weighed over 2,700 pounds. He sired an estimated half a million offspring in more than 50 countries. No, he's not Genghis Khan or Screaming Jay Hawkins. He's Toy Story, a bull. Well, a former bull. Toy Story died this past Thanksgiving, but he's being remembered and indeed commemorated in bovine circles. A recent article in the Wall Street Journal talked a little bit about how Toy Story and his owners did it, but I really wanted to get into some more detail. So I'm joined now by John Parrish, who's a professor in the Department of Animal Sciences at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Hello, Professor Parrish. Hello. Did you know a Toy Story before he passed away? I didn't know this particular bull. Um, I can tell you things about him. I've looked him up. What are some of Toy Story's more impressive stats? Uh, the big thing while he was so desirable was that he had positive what they call type traits, which mm-hmm. is the way the Uh, female offspring are put together the way they look, and so their ability to withstand in a herd, as well as a high milk production capability of those offspring. And then what's really unique is that it had what's called an easy calving score. So the size of the calf was small, but those calves, um, as females, grew up to be very large and large milk-producing animals. So that seems to be a formula for being a great father of calves, but the other part of it is production. Well, how's it work? One-twentieth of a teaspoon is put in a straw and sent anywhere? Yeah, so this straw is um, can be either 0.25 or 0.5 mils, and the semen's collected with what is called an artificial vagina. Mm-hmm. And basically it looks like a radiator tube about a foot to a foot and a half long with a liner and it's filled with warm water. And then the penis would go in in the center of that where it doesn't contact the water. But what they would typically do is they'd bring this bull, in this case Toy Story, out to a collection arena. Mm-hmm. They would have some other mount animals, um, usually they're other bulls that are just kept for this purpose. And they would bring him out, and they'd allow him to mount on the back of one of these mount animals. And they would um, pull his penis to one side so he couldn't ejaculate. They'd let him down, and then they'd let him remount. And then on the remount, they'd take this artificial vagina, put over the end of his penis. He would thrust, and he would ejaculate in that. And they would then take that semen collected back to the lab, and they would process it with an extender and put it into straws, and then freeze it, store it in liquid nitrogen, and ship around the world that semen. Now, is this mount animal, is that sometimes called a teaser animal? That's the phrase yeah, I Yeah, it could be also called a teaser, yeah. teaser, and interestingly, it's a bull. It's not a female. No, that's correct. So what's unique about these bulls in bull studs, um, these organizations that own these bulls, is that once that bull is brought in, he never sees a female again. Hmm. And that's to prevent any sort of disease transmission that he might have. So they have a, what they call a high biosecurity. They test these bulls all the time to make sure that they're disease-free, and many of those tests are required to be able to export that semen or import it into foreign countries. So I'm going to say this is me being really uh, humanist or really anthropomorphizing, but I would just think it's interesting to note that perhaps the most virile mammal I've ever heard of 
I'm not going to say he's gay because that's anthropomorphizing, but all of his ejaculations were inspired by other males. That's right. And that's, um, you know, even female um, bovine cows Mm -hmm. will mount other cows when they're in a period of receptivity when they would normally be bred. This is probably, this is inherent within cattle that they would do this. And I wouldn't say he's gay. This is just the particular... Uh, way that uh, this species behaves, and we've probably actually selected for it because it's advantageous to see when a female's ready to be bred, and this is just the male side of that same thing. When you say we've selected for it, meaning what? What have we selected for? So if you go back into the Middle Ages and before, they would have in a little village, you would have a bunch of female cows, and they might be doing various things, and there would be one bull for that village. It was advantageous to know when those females were at the right time to be bred so that the farmer could take his cow down to the bull to get her bred because not everybody had bulls. Those cows mount other cows when they're ready or will be mounted by other cows when they're ready to be bred by a bull. So the farmer would know that that animal is then ready to be taken down to the bull, and so then they would take them down there. And so over the thousands of years that cattle have been domesticated, that was probably a characteristic that was enhanced by our selection of animals that showed this type of a trait. And how many times a week would he ejaculate? So typically a bull like this, whose semen is very valuable, they would collect him on a day, they would collect him twice. So they'd bring him out and go through the collection procedure I described. They would let him sit for a few minutes and then they would collect him again. And they would do that three times a week. So he was probably collected... Monday, Wednesday, Friday, from when he was about five years old until he died here at about 13 years old. And at 13, like, they don't slow down? It's not the equivalent of a human teenager who's just, well, not human. All adolescents, I guess, would be higher in testosterone, or there'd be a certain peak for uh, different animals, right? Yeah, and so that peak is actually at about five years of age for Mm -hmm. a bull. So this is impressive that Toy Story was able to do it as a 12- and 13-year-old. The only thing that really slows them down is that as they get older, they usually suffer back injuries. Yeah. So they get arthritis, and it sounds like that was a problem that he was having, and then he was unable to get around and eat, and so that probably led to his demise. So how much would a straw of uh, Toy Story's semen go for, and was it higher than other bulls? So when I looked this up, he was going for about $60 a straw, and so this is varied over time, but that's pretty high. An average bull would be in the range of $20 maybe. 15 to $20 a straw. Mm-hmm. So $60 is quite a bit. Keep in mind that they can produce anywhere from, oh, 400 to 800 doses per day of semen. Right, because so we're talking about a teaspoon. Four, or, yeah. Let's just say 400 times 60, that's $24,000 yeah. each day that they collect it. So Toy Story was generating almost $4 million in sales a year? That's right. That's so when you, when you have a bowl like this, he makes a significant amount of the money brought into a particular organization. So he's very well taken care of. <laughs> he's very well looked after, and they spend extra time making sure they can get every drop of semen out of him. Is there any problem in terms of uh, variation of the species if one father is responsible for so much of the genetics of so many different cows? So many people... Um, often comment about this inbreeding and particularly Holstein animals, which Tolstoy was a Holstein bull. 
But, you know, really, you only need to get down to 10 or 15 animals within a species and still contain about 90% of the genetic variability. So that's really not a problem on the scale that we're talking about. So in your training, you are a tenured professor. In your training, have you ever done it? Have you ever done uh, semen collection from a bull like this? Oh, yeah. I have collected lots and lots of times. So the first time, do you try, I mean, do you do it with an an old guy who tells you not to joke, or is it pretty much known that uh, there's going to be some awkwardness involved? So, yes, there is. But, you know, they tend to have pretty good libido yeah. to start with. But you might have to, we, we said that you had a mount animal or a teaser that you had tied in this room. Mm-hmm. You might actually have to walk the bull behind a teaser animal and make him circle around the room to get him to mount the first few times. But, you know, in a Holstein bull, they have more aggression than other bulls, and they tend to be fairly easy to train to collect semen from. Yeah, because the Wall Street Journal had this phrase, a well-timed maneuver by an adroit handler. And as someone who was an adroit handler at one time, I was wondering what that maneuver might be. Oh, that was being able to get the artificial vagina over the end of the penis. Okay, so keep in mind that this bull is over 2,000 pounds. Yeah. Okay, so he's jumping on top of another bull that's probably 1,500 to 2,000 pounds. And when he jumps on top of him, he's going to get an erection, and then he's going to leap forward. And at that point in time, you've got to be able to place the penis into this artificial vagina. And that is not so easy for a lot of people. (laughs) There are guys who are just kept around the farm because they're great at that one. That's right, because you have to be really quick and you have to know what you're doing without getting stepped on. Just think, maybe I have this skill and I never even knew it. I mean, we were all put on the world to do something. What if I was great at adroitly positioning the artificial vagina to a bull's erect penis? Well, then you would have a job for life. All right, so this is my one last question, and this is one of those, forgive me, but I just thought of it. So I know how things work, especially with guys, and when you do something, there's something like gallows humor. The AV, the artificial vagina, Uh is it often given a nickname? I've never heard it called something like that. Very good. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I've never heard him call that anything other than an AV. (laughs) I respect the professionalism. John Parrish is a professor in the Department of Animal Sciences at the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Thank you so much, Professor. Okay, thank you very much. You are an unfit rival. My spirit's taught to sing, but a tune's so twisted now. Like all that sweet's gone. And now the spiel. Process versus product. Boko Haram has unleashed terror and destruction in Nigeria. I will now criticize the media that points out that fact. Homelessness is a terrible problem, complicated by the public's misperceptions about the homeless. I will now criticize a news outlet that seeks to correct the misperceptions. And while I'm at it, I will defend kidnappers, specifically the killer of a small child and the killer of an old lady. 
Am I Johnny Contrarian? No, I'm Angus Contravener. Actually, this is about process. My at times, and perhaps now this is such a time, my commitment to fairness, even if it afflicts the afflicted. So here goes. Maybe you saw these gripping satellite images of Nigeria before and after two Nigerian towns were struck by Boko Haram. Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch disseminated the pictures. So the before were bright red pockets of vegetation. They were blooming like a thousand poppies. And after the pictures were gray and denuded. And yeah, it does point out that the Boko Haram forces destroyed buildings and burned fields. But the thing that makes it pop off the page or the screen is the contrast of the red before and the gray after. But there was no red before. Some, but far from all of the news, noted that the red color was achieved by a process called false color infrared imagery. CNN ran with the red, BBC ran the red. As far as I could tell, everyone other than the New York Times published the false color red imagery. But, you may argue, isn't the important thing shocking, normally complacent consumers into action or at least interest? Yeah, but isn't that what the hashtag Bring Back Our Girls did? We're really better off from that? I don't know. Maybe these pictures are more arresting, but they are less accurate. Similarly, the website Vox had a list of myths about homelessness. Now, I have attacked the myths about this or that form that has become so prevalent. So how they do it is they typically overstate a perception in order to puncture it. But that's not really what a myth is. Thor was a myth. All Scandinavians think a guy with a hammer controls lightning. That's not a myth. It's overstating a premise. All right, Vox, homelessness. Vox says, here's a myth, most homeless people are addicted to drugs and alcohol. Here's the reality. Roughly one-third of sheltered homeless adults had chronic substance abuse issues. That's the puncturing of the myth. Vox says, homelessness is typically related to mental illness. Then they note, while 5% of U.S. adults are mentally ill, one in four sheltered homeless people suffer from severe mental illness. They say, homelessness is only a problem in big cities. That's a myth, they say. Then they report the reality. Nearly 46% of homeless people lived in a major city in 2014. So all these myths work like this. Let us find something that is largely true and then pretend it's mostly true. Or in one case, let's find, let's say something is mostly true and then document that it's actually 4% away from being mostly true. I don't want to vilify the homeless, but come on, the process involved in that article was lacking on a mythological level. And now is the time where I stand up for kidnappers. Or rather, I think we've taken to defining kidnapping pretty broadly. I don't know if anyone else is talking about this, but I have noticed this in crime stories. The kidnappers I'm going to talk about are often horrible people. Every one of them really, really did something wrong. I just don't know if they did kidnapping. So there was this teacher in New York who's being charged with statutory rape and kidnapping. That is terrible. But the kidnapping part was that the student, the underage student who had sex with him, so this guy does need to go to jail, but the kidnapping was that he drove her to a beach without her parents' permission. Then there is this case, Lisa Ann Coleman, 38 years old. She was executed by the state of Texas in September. Coleman's girlfriend, Micella Williams, was the mother of nine-year-old Devante Williams. And the two women killed, they beat, and starved the boy. He died of malnutrition. Nine years old, only weighed 35 pounds. But that, though it's horrible, did not make Coleman eligible for the death penalty in Texas. What made her eligible was that the death of this boy happened during a kidnapping. But Devante didn't leave his own home. The state argued that the two women used restraints against Devante 
and that they would also tell neighbors that Devante wasn't home. And that, they said, constituted kidnapping. Coleman's lawyers argued unsuccessfully what she's really guilty of is being a black lesbian. No, I say. She's guilty of being a black lesbian who killed her girlfriend's son. However, the kidnapping charge seems far-fetched. I don't think under Texas law she should have been executed. The Supreme Court this week, in fact, issued a ruling on kidnapping. So here's the story. A robber enters the home of a 79-year-old woman, takes her hostage. But that, under the law, that's not kidnapping. But during the course of the hostage taking, to go with him from the hall to another room, that according to the court, is kidnapping. Now, the robber was a bad man, and the woman died from a heart attack, but to charge him with kidnapping, it all came down to the law, which was written as defining kidnapping as forcing another to accompany. So Justice Antonin Scalia cracked the books, not the legal books, 19th century English literature, and in his decision, he quoted Pride and Prejudice, where Elizabeth accompanied her out of the room, He quoted Dickens' David Copperfield, Uriah accompanied me into Mr. Wickfield's room. Justice Hugo Black and William Douglas grappled with the Pentagon Papers. Justice Antonin Scalia concerns himself with the Pickwick Papers. But I want to know, in defining a company, was Justice Scalia unable to quote? Gypsy wind is blowing warm tonight. Did precedent preclude him from citing? Still you're telling me you have to go Before you leave, there's something you should know And in a concurring opinion, Justice Sotomayor said Something you should know, babe So there you have it. I'm sticking up for kidnappers, it would seem. Or actually, what I'm doing is I'm saying that these malefactors did wrong. They just probably didn't kidnap. And there's one other critique of the process that I want to offer. I take you to last night's television spectacular, an award show. From Hollywood, it's the World Dog Awards. Hosted by George Lopez. The big dog himself. George Lopez. This was a truly ridiculous affair. I think we can all agree that tonight's show is off the chain. Not just because of the excesses of awards shows. They had celebrities, like Paris Hilton type celebrities. They had categories including most dog-like cat. And they did that thing where they made jokes about the presenters' names. Let's meet our next presenters. One's a powder hound. The other needs a muzzle. Please welcome Olympic snowboarder Louis Vito and NFL pro bowler Terrell Owens. I enjoy a more specific version of this. You know, the uh, she portrayed a TV prosecutor. He propositioned a TV prostitute. Say hello to Angie Harmon and Eddie Murphy. Or one spends time with Angie Jolie, the other with Ellen Foley. Say hello to Brad Pitt and Meatloaf. But this show had most of the trappings, including... And the Golden Hydrant Award goes to... But really, it was off. You know why? Because dogs don't care. They do not care. Dogs don't want a trophy. Dogs want kibble. Scratch behind the ears. If there really were an award show for dogs that dogs gave a damn about, it would go a little something like this. Joe Hubert, is it true what they say about chows having black tongues? What are you, freaking mailman? Get out of my yard! Get out of my yard! Okay, big guy. The award for the best leg to hump goes to... Grandpa's leg! A random visitor's leg. Grandma's leg. That leg in the wool pants. And the golden hydrant goes to... Any leg. Any leg at all. Excepting for legs. 
John Travolta. Gotta hump him. Gotta hump him. Gotta hump John Travolta's leg. Down, Hubert, down. Come on, let's go backstage. They brought everything. Treats, vomit, cat poop, balls, tennis balls, other dogs' butts. Did I mention vomit? Squeaky toys. Really squeaky toys. Toys that used to squeak, but I ate them. Socks. And that's it for today's show. I've seen just producer Andrea Salenzi smiling in the summer sun. I've seen the long hair of Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, flying when you run. He knows to mark his territory through urinating, defecating, and by scratching, rubbing, and biting trees. And someday, maybe, he'll accompany me. Out where the rivers meet the sounding sea, you'll find Andy Bowers, executive producer of Slate Podcast. You can go to iTunes and subscribe there. While you're there, give us a review. I read, like, almost all the reviews. Okay, all the reviews, except the one stars. They get me down. Slate.com slash just email is a place to sign up for our email. So is the app Yo, where you sign up for podcast. We'll let you know as soon as the podcast is ready to go. And Facebook.com slash Slate just is high above me now, wild and free. Now, I just want to note that the title of the song that we've been talking about is You'll Accompany Me. Not a company, accompany me. It is spelled... P apostrophe N-Y, a company. When they ask who has an ironclad commitment to rhyme scheme, I know I'll raise my hand, and I also know, Bob Seeger, that you'll accompany me. Thanks for listening.